Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. Merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store, and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. Beginning next week is the world's second largest international sports competition, the Paralympic Games, an event with a surprisingly long and interesting history, starting with roots as physical rehabilitation and therapy for World War II veterans. Guesting on this extra edition of Truly the Goats is now three-time guest Dr. Dennis Frost. Dennis has previously joined Truly the Goats for episode 6 on sumo wrestling and episode 14 on 1920s track and field superstar Kinue Hitomi, but his latest book entitled More Than Medals, A History of the Paralympics and Disability Sports in Post-War Japan shows his academic specialization. In the following interview, Dennis talks to us about Paralympics history, the influence of the games on Japanese culture, the local population's reaction to hosting another mega sports event after a pretty controversial locally Tokyo Olympics, a couple of notable or notorious Paralympians of the past, China's recent dominance of the games, and, since this is truly the goats, a handful of goat Paralympians. Enjoy. Dennis, thanks for completing the three-peat here on Truly the Goats. Yeah, thanks again for having me back. I really enjoy being here. Great, great. Well, let's get into it. I'm really interested to know a lot more about Paralympics. I'm sure most of our audience doesn't. And so I'd like to talk to you first off. Your second book, More Than Medals, A History of the Paralympics and Disability Sports in Post-War Japan, is quite indicative of your academic specialization. How did you get interested in Paralympic sports and specifically in Asia? So my interest in Asia came first. Uh, I mean, that actually came out of my undergraduate experience. So I had, when I was in high school, I had never really had any exposure to Japan or China or Korea, any of those places. Um, and, and so when I got to college, I had the opportunity to start taking Japanese and I did. Uh, and within like the first couple of weeks, I was like, wow, I really love this. Uh, and I, I think I'm going to make a career of studying the language. Didn't yet know I was going to become a professor. That came a little bit later, but um, and then I spent some time in Japan uh, studying abroad, and that uh, led me to, to decide I wanted to study Japanese history. Ended up, uh, you know, kind of fast forward a bit, ended up in graduate school, was looking for a research project for my dissertation, uh, and ended up producing the dissertation about what, what became the first book about the history of sports stars. Uh, so I've been working on sports for quite a while. Uh, and then uh, I was actually teaching a class 
uh, at, a, at actually my alma mater. I taught for a year there. Uh, and a student uh, had, had asked me about, they were doing presentations, class presentations on the Nagano Olympics. Uh, and so one of the students in that group came to me and said, could I do my presentation on the Nagano Paralympics? And I said, sure, because I'm always eager to let students do what they're interested in. But uh, I was like, how in the world, you know, I've been studying sports now for like five, six years. How do I not know about this event? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was like, this is this is ridiculous. You know, I knew Japan, knew Japanese history. I was like, I knew I knew a lot about sports, Japan, but I didn't know about this. And so when I started looking, I realized there really wasn't much in English. Uh, not even at that point, a lot in Japanese uh, available, easily accessible in Japanese. Uh, and so I was like, this sounds like a great project. So that's kind of the initial kind of impetus. And that was back right around 2006, 2007. So well before, uh, you know, Tokyo got the right to host the 2020, 2021 games. Um, so I've been kind of thinking about this for a long, long time. Uh, and then the other impetus is, uh, you know, my youngest son, he was born uh, with spina bifida right around the same time I was starting to kind of think about kind of a new book project. Uh, he was he was born with spina bifida and was getting to the age where he was starting to take an interest in sports. Uh, he uses a wheelchair um, for 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 especially for distance and things like that. And so we kind of knew we were going to have to look for something adapted uh, for him to do sports. And so fortunately, we found some programs near us uh, here in Michigan, uh, and and we were able kind of to be involved in that. So it's kind of come at me from both directions, kind of this academic interest uh, which emerged over time, uh, and then this kind of personal side where my son is very involved now in, in wheelchair sports. Uh, in fact, we're going to a wheelchair tennis tournament uh, this weekend. Uh, so you know, so the, all sorts of stuff like that is kind of kind of intersected in, in really interesting and complex ways for me. Yeah, actually, through your work and researching this episode, I actually first heard about the the wheelchair marathon. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa, that's insane. Is it actually 26 miles? Yes, yes. So, yeah, and in the early days of the marathon, uh, the wheelchair marathons, this is true in all the early wheelchair marathons, they used uh, essentially like their everyday chairs. So now the marathon chairs, chairs are like, there's these souped up like racing chairs, uh, mm -hmm. super lightweight. But the, back in the original days, back in the 80s, when they were first starting wheelchair marathons, people were using essentially like a standard wheelchair. Yeah, like the boxy one. Yeah, which you can imagine, like pushing that, you know, 26 miles. Uh, that's, you know, it's not designed for that. You know, so a lot of people talk about like the early kind of descriptions of that event. Uh, there's actually descriptions of people like they're like showing off their blisters on their hands and things like that. I bet. So, yeah, it's pretty intense. Okay, let's start at the beginning of the Paralympic movement. Now, as I understand it, um, this was begun for in Britain for war veterans. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's, I mean, and there is some stuff that comes before that, you know, and if, if you're looking at kind of the broader history of sports for people with different disabilities, there's there's uh, activities for people that, that were visually impaired, uh, people that had, uh, had you know, deaf athletes. So there's there's a history that precedes this as well. Uh, but the what we think of the Paralympics really is dated to about 1948 uh, in England, uh, started at a hospital that was designed to treat, um, it was set up to treat people that were injured in World War II, uh, that were, had spinal cord in injuries, so they're paralyzed in some form or another. Uh, and then, you know, of course, after the war ends, people still continue to be injured in accidents or have illnesses and stuff that lead to paralysis. And so, so uh, this, it started in 1948 uh, and then kind of continued to spread gradually out from England. Uh, and the key figure there is, is a guy by the name of Ludwig Gutmann. Um, he's the, the guy who kind of is, is credited, is often described as the father of the Paralympics. Okay. But in 1960, mm -hmm. the Paralympic Games come to Rome, which is mm -hmm. highly symbolic for any sport, any sport event. And that's usually recognized as the first official Paralympics. Now, mm -hmm. why? What happened in 1960? 
1960, part of why they're considered the first Paralympics is it was the first time that the Paralympics were held in conjunction, essentially, with the Olympics. So the Olympics were held in Rome, of course, that year in 1960, also a really big year. Uh, and then soon after that, the Paralympics were held using some of the same venues, not exactly the same venues. And I don't, I don't think they used the Athens Village. I can't remember for sure. Um, but so that's why it's kind of seen as kind of the first official Paralympics, because it was kind of linked directly with the Olympics. It was also the first games that left England. So the games before that uh, had all been, so 48, they would have them pretty much every year. They would have an event um, in England. Uh, at the time, they were called the Stoke Manville Games, named after the hospital where they happened. Um, and still, through really up until like the 1970s, you still see them referred to sometimes as the Stoke Manville Games. Um, and so, uh, so even though the games in Rome were still called the Stoke Manville Games, they were just the Stoke Manville Games in Rome. And the ones in Tokyo in 64 were the Stoke Manville Games uh, in Tokyo. Yeah, let's talk about 64, because as you've described in your work, this is when Tokyo gets to host the Paralympics. And it really had this 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 profound change of their society like we always hope for in these big sports events. Uh, can you describe that for us? Yeah. So the, the Paralympics, I mean, part of the, the fascinating story, and this is one of the things, you know, I had no idea about these games when I first started looking into them. Um, you know, I, I vaguely knew they had happened, but didn't know much about kind of their history and background. Uh, what was pretty remarkable about it is that uh, Japan had, if you had looked at this in 1960 and said Japan's going to host the Paralympics in four years, everybody knew they were hosting the Olympics, but the Paralympics were not a requirement. Uh, they were essentially still new, right? They're less than like 12 years old at that point. Um, you know, nobody knows about these games. In Japan, very few people at all knew what that they existed. Uh, and so even the, some of the organizers that become key figures in, in the Paralympic movement in 64 um, they had never heard of the games in 1960. Uh, and so the fact that they end up hosting in 64 is really remarkable. And it's this, this fascinating story of kind of like all this kind of scrambling around to get funding and all that type of stuff. So it's a really great story. But what they do end up having a pretty profound impact in several ways. Uh, and one of them is the fact that, you know, as I said, there was no real awareness of the Paralympics before this in Japan. And so if nothing else, it kind of suddenly puts the Paralympics on the map uh, in the Japanese uh, society. Uh, it also, you know, Japan didn't really have institutions in place to promote uh, sports for people with disabilities. It was not something that they were kind of involved in doing at the time. Uh, and in fact, no Japanese athletes had ever participated before 1962 uh, in any of those events in England or the ones in Rome. So, you know, so the fact that you then get the Paralympics happen and then you start seeing all these institutions created. Uh, so in terms of sports, it's a huge development. It also led to kind of a lot of new ideas about rehabilitation because the games at that point were very much still oriented around this kind of medical benefit uh, that this is this is designed to help people with disabilities, um, you know, achieve rehabilitation, get back to work, get back to, to living in society. Uh, and in Japan at the time, the kind of idea for a lot of people, especially with kind of severe spinal cord injuries uh, and, and forms of paralysis, would be that they probably were thinking they're gonna spend a good portion of their lives in the hospital, the rest of their lives in the hospital uh, or some sort of rehabilitation facility uh, and or maybe at home, right, with their family. Um, so part of what you see is that suddenly there's this discussion about, well, maybe that doesn't have to be the case. Um, and so, you know, it does have a pretty profound impact. You know, there's, there's also ways in which, you know, one of the things I talked about in the book is it's not all positive, of course, uh, because, you know, it does reinforce, it, it, in some ways, it challenges some stereotypes and it reinforces others. So, so it's this kind of complicated situation, but it is kind of a fascinating moment that, you know, without the games in 64, it would have looked like a very different situation in Japan after that. Okay, let's talk about this. The Paralympic Games don't tend to hit the mainstream sports consciousness very much. However, I can think of at least two somewhat recent examples. So I'd like to ask you about that. Okay, first yeah. off, there was the 1992 games 
mm-hmm. which are, in my opinion, one of the one of the greatest Olympic games ever. And 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 a lot of people look upon that as the first modern 21st century Olympics, if you will, post Cold War Olympics. Mm-hmm. And at that Olympics, of course, the Paralympic archer Antonio Rabalo mm-hmm. lit the torch in one of the most famous torch lightings ever. Did that have any sort of impact? on Paralympic athletes in the Paralympics? So actually what was happening at that point in time is that the Paralympics itself was kind of reorganizing. Uh, And so part of what you're seeing there is a consequence of those kind of institutional reorganizations, which are uh, on on paper and they're they're pretty dry. uh, So I'm not going to kind of uh, go into great detail here. But essentially what happens is you get an organization that is set up to parallel the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, on the Paralympic side. Before that, it was kind of a, a gr- different groups of people. And it kind of, for a lot of people that were organizing these big events, it felt kind of unorganized because you had to work with like six different groups instead of like one central committee. Um, and so what you see in is that uh, in the 90s, you start seeing them kind of consolidate into this thing called that now known as the International Paralympic C- Committee, the IPC. Uh, and that that had a pretty profound impact on kind of it led to cro- closer integration with the Olympics. Um, it led to increased funding. Um, it's right in around the 2000s where you start seeing more emphasis being placed on um, the games are going to have to start uh, ho- agreeing to host the Paralympics too. It's not just kind of an add-on event that's voluntary like it was, you know, back in the 60s and and really all the way up into the, the 90s. It was still kind of voluntary. They weren't required to host these events. Um, and so. That's partly why you're seeing athletes in from the Paralympics participating in the Olympics. There's there's um, you know different kind of events that are being held. They're not medal events, exhibitions, and, and things like that, where you're having kind of athletes with disabilities participating in some way. Or, and like you said, the, the torch lighting ceremony. So there's very there's lots of famous moments like that. There is of course also moments, um, and this may be what you're going to ask about your other your second question. Uh, but there are moments where people cross over. Right, that that there are athletes who have different impairments that end up competing in the Olympics. Uh, you know, so there's been swimmers who were deaf, um, uh, and you know, and other athletes and things like that that have kind of crossed over. And so those those tend to kind of generate a lot of kind of interest and sometimes bring extra attention to the Paralympics as well. Well, here you go. Here's your most famous crossover athlete, which is uh, Oscar Pistorius, who crossed over. You know, was world famous, world famous. Mm -hmm. a national hero in Australia and and even beyond. And ultimately he ended up being more or less the O.J. Simpson of your sport. I suppose, you know, he has no official standing with the Paralympics or anything like that, but how do the people involved in the sport feel about this? Did it, did it damage the reputation of the Paralympics or anything? I think, you know, I think it, in some people's minds, it probably did because it always does anytime you have, uh, you know, an atrocity like that happen. Um, and, and I think, uh, it is in some respects, it may have been kind of past the, the, the kind of peak of his career. Uh, you know, that was that famous moment where he, he competed in the Olympic games and then he actually competed in the Paralympic games. He actually, I, I, if I remember correctly, he didn't win, uh, his race in the Paralympics. He actually was beat. Um, and so, you know, so there was a lot of kind of discussion about kind of like, he was this famous athlete that crossed over. Um, but at the same time, uh, it was, you know, there's this kind of moment where, the Paralympic athletes themselves are becoming better and better and better uh, as well. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I think, you know, it, it's one of those things where those things happen sometimes in sports. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily, cause he's not the sole, like you said, he's not the sole representative of the Paralympics. He's just kind of one athlete. Uh, and so the Paralympic movement, I don't think kind of, they don't talk about him clearly uh, in, in, in many respects these days. 
Um, but they have a lot of other stuff to talk about anyway. Um, and I think that's the reality is that kind of the, the Olympic, the Paralympic movement has just kind of continued to kind of grow and see kind of improvements in athlete performance and things like that to the extent that now, like they just have so many other athletes that they can kind of can talk about uh, that it doesn't have to be about just one person kind of setting the kind of image for the for the games. Yeah, I think that I think the typical sports fan uh, believes that Pistorius was the first to cross over yeah. between the games, but he was actually like the 10th yeah. or 11th yeah. in history, even at that point, even in 2012 or whenever it was. Yeah. So you don't have to talk about O.J. Simpson to still talk about football. Exactly. So, no, okay, of course, in 2008, there's another important moment because Beijing hosts the Paralympics and to no one's surprise, all of a sudden they're dominant, just as they are in women's sports in the Olympics. In your opinion, is this what we have to look forward to? Is is China going to really dominate these games for a while yet? Uh, I mean, that's what it looks like. You know, all, all the indications are there uh, that that China isn't they're investing money into Paralympic athletes, um, which is which is the difference. Um, and I think, you know, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm actually kind of interested to see what happens for lots of reasons with Tokyo this year. But one of the things is that Japan has this is one one of the first times, I guess, 98, they invested pretty heavily, too. And they actually had a big medal hall at the Paralympics. And so but they've invested in some ways almost equally Paralympics and Olympic athletes. So uh, and, you know, and so I think when you do something like that, suddenly that gives these athletes that opportunities that they would have never have had otherwise. They've had more opportunities to compete internationally. They've had more opportunities to train. You know, they have the best, very best equipment. Uh, and I think that that's partly what we're seeing on the Chinese side is that the, their sports system is designed in a way to, I mean, achieve results. Um, and so they've essentially kind of taken that system and said, we're going to do the same thing for the Paralympics. Um, and, and again, that's that's my sense. I've not looked at the, the, the situation in China nearly as closely as I have the, the Japanese stuff, but but that's, you know, it, it makes sense that, that that's what's happening there. And I think it's probably going to continue to happen for a while. Yeah. It's all about the money in international sport, right? So, and the organization. Certainly a big factor. We'll get back to the Truly the Goats podcast in just a moment. But first, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl I, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now, get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One shop, check out the thousands more of unique 
unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, ROW number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Okay, you know, this may be a loaded question. Uh, this year, the Olympics were quite controversial in Tokyo, in Japan. Are the Paralympics getting any blowback that are on right now? So they they are and they aren't. It, it's interesting. I mean, and I'm still, it's a, really a developing story. So, I mean, I'm kind of following this pretty closely for obvious reasons. Uh, and what I'm seeing is that, you know, there's a lot of people saying, you know, we didn't have fans at the Olympics you know, the, the prime minister came out and said he would really like to see fans at the, the Paralympics. Uh, he said that even as the Olympics were, were going on with no fans. Um, and I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, considering the fact that the, the coronavirus has actually seems to have gotten worse throughout the games in Japan, then if you try and have fans at the Paralympics, that seems ridiculous, um, which I mean, so I'm not thinking they're going to have fans for one thing. Uh, but there is discussion around stuff like that. But but I think what what's been interesting is that uh, it's really hard because part of the, the promotional materials around the Paralympics this year was that it was going to be, and part of the, around the Olympics too, was this is going to be Japan's uh, way to kind of demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion uh, in society. Uh, and so the Paralympics, of course, were a key part of that. And they were going to really show kind of the, their commitment to kind of accessibility and barrier-free society in both kind of, you know, a physical sense and in this kind of broader kind of we were kind to people with disabilities. And, uh, you know, so there's lots of kind of stuff that was marketed about that. And I think that a lot of people are looking at that kind of much more cynically than they would before. Um, and part of that is because well, you know, you're telling people, I mean, they, they just said recently, you know, that, oh, if you're not too sick, just stay home um, because we don't have enough hospital beds. Like, and, and you're telling people that, like, which means you're putting people, uh, your own society at risk and probably it's vulnerable members of society at risk um, to ha host these games and, and to kind of do this at a moment. And, and so I think there's a lot of people that are kind of questioning some of those and seeing them kind of as kind of just talking points that maybe have no real significance, which is too bad. Uh, because, you know, I think there is a lot of people that that took those very seriously and there was some serious commitments that were made. Uh, but but, you know, I don't know how they're going to how they're going to sort out in the end. And that's again, I'm watching this pretty closely to kind of see how everything comes. I haven't seen quite the negative response of like cancel the Paralympics that you saw with the Olympics, in part because I think a lot of people are like, well, it's already happened. But but there is but there is also concern because you're also talking about bringing some people in that are often kind of seen as having being potentially more vulnerable uh, to, to some of these things like COVID and things like that. So, so there's, there's lots of questions again. Uh, and I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm kind of mixed uh, emotions on it. Like, obviously I've been studying this. I, I know a lot of people that are involved in it, but you know, at the same time, I, I look at kind of the other people that I know in Japan that are kind of struggling to deal with COVID. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's a hard case. It's, it's not a kind of straightforward, this, this should happen this way, I think. Right. Okay. Uh, a little bit. Before the show, and since this is truly the GOATs, I'm, I'm obliged to ask you this. You, you mentioned some of the GOAT Paralympians of the past. Uh, can you give us a couple of stories? Who are some of the who are some of the GOAT athletes that you've seen? Well, there's a ton. And I, I you know, this is like I said, I, I focus my work mainly on Japan, the Japan side. But, you know, you have uh, people like Tani Gray out of Britain uh, who are, are pretty remarkable athletes. And, you know, I think 
I think now is has been you know is nobility officially or something whatever however they do that in in England. So, but I mean in the Japanese side, one of the people that I think is really kind of impressive that is not all that well known outside of Japan. I don't think is uh, Tsuchida Wakako. Uh, she was she's one of the few athletes to win gold in uh, in both kind of games. Uh, in the winter and summer games. She first started out winning medals uh, in the Nagano Paralympics, uh, won several events there. Uh, and then what ended up happening is those events had, you know, relatively small numbers of competitors over the years. And so those got dropped from competition. So instead she just switched to track and field events and was, you know, at one point had the world record in the marathon. Um, and, and so, you know, so really impressive athlete, kind of all around athlete uh, in, in many respects. Um, you also have, you know, I think one of the greatest wheelchair racers right now, uh, Tatiana McFadden from the United States. Uh, has, um, you know, just is blowing all records away left and right. Uh, and the same thing's happening kind of on the, the men's team, uh, men's side with, with marathons and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, I, I mean, we're looking at kind of, I think the, the, the Paralympics right now have some of the best athletes um, we've ever seen uh, in, in some respects. And that's always kind of hard to say because, you know, it's all, as, as you know, truly the goats, right? Where, where, what do you mean by that? But I think if you're just looking at kind of the level of competition that is that they're dealing with, you know, it, the level of competition is just escalated everywhere. Um, and, and so you're seeing kind of really, really impressive performances. And if you're looking at if you want to see a really, really amazing tennis matches, uh, check out any any tennis match with Shingo Kunieda playing. Um, I mean, remarkable, just just the way he kind of moves the chair and the racket and the ball around. It, it's it's amazing uh, to watch. So uh, and so, you know, I enjoy watching uh, watching athletes like that play. So, yeah, uh, there's there's some great, great competition out there. Uh, you know, it's, it's well worth kind of kind of checking out. And this year, I think there's going to be a lot more coverage. Uh, this is one of the first years NBC is doing like a, a lot of. Coverage. Well, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So, okay, so great. definitely great. kind of an opportunity to kind of really check things out this year, I think. Yeah, I was wondering if I was going to get to see this mm-hmm. at all. I think Tatiana McFadden needs some better PR people because that's a that's a great American name. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that that's America, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you could have somebody named Tatiana McFadden like playing in the Paralympics and starring. Yeah. I mean, wow, she she needs she needs some PR. Okay, just I guess final question is the obvious one. What do you see happening in the future with the game? Do you see a brighter future, uh, more sports? What do you think? Uh, I think they're they're pretty they're getting pretty close to maxed out. I think uh, because um, you know part of that is that they they are tied to the Olympics, uh, and so uh, you know you're you're approaching this this point where you know diminishing returns, I guess maybe right where you know are people just gonna get get be like okay I've had enough right we've got like two months worth of Olympics Paralympics. Um, and so, you know, if we kind of keep adding more stuff, you have to keep expanding the time frame. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I do think, uh, like I said, level of competition, be, partly because, you know, the athletes are, are, are better. Um, also, equipment is, is improved. You know, like the sports chairs now are just remarkable. They're these like miniature rockets. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, and they're like all scientifically designed and, uh, you know, human propelled rockets, of course. Right. But um, you know, and then, you know, the other equipment that people are using, it's, you know, top of the line stuff, you know, you've got major companies that are designing things, uh, you know, Honda has participated in, in designing chairs for Japanese athletes and things like that. So, so, I mean, you've got like it, the, in terms of the level performance, I think it's just going to keep going up at the, at the Paralympic level. Um, what I, what I hope, uh, and this is kind of, you know, part of one of the things that I kind of 
again, part of this gets into the personal stuff here, uh, is I hope that we'll see continue to see, uh, you know, this spread kind of beyond the elite level. Um, and that, you know, the, in some ways, the only way you can get that elite level is if you have some grassroots stuff before you get there. Uh, and that grassroots stuff in some places is doing fine. I mean, like I said, we happen to be in an area where we've got pretty solid uh, programs, but you move, you know, an, an hour away from where I live, uh, that means those people got to drive another hour beyond what I drive already, right? So to get to the programs that we use, and there's just nothing else. So they've got to, you know, so it's really kind of scattered. And that grassroots kind of approach uh, is, is, I think, kind of, you know, is key in lots of sites. It's definitely true in Japan. I think you're starting to see it, it kind of take off at a grassroots level. It's, it has happened. And one of the things I talked about in my book is that it has happened for a long time in certain places. Um, you're seeing it spread kind of other places as well now. Um, and in the U.S., you know, I think that there is this growing interest uh, in adapted sports at the college level. Um, and so we'll see what that what that translates to in the in the next few years. So, yeah, lots of lots of interesting stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I also think uh, I, I was just actually talking to, to some folks about this um, is that the, the Paralympics, you know, the Olympics is, as I think, has been controversial and is continuing to be controversial for a number of years. Um, and is likely to continue to be controversial for lots of reasons. Um, the Paralympics have not um, had that same degree of controversy. The, you know, I guess what I hope is that they can dodge and avoid some of the problems that the, the Olympics have had um, and, and kind of sort out some of those things. Maybe they've watched what has happened to the Olympics and say, oh, we don't want to go that way. Um, but it, it's, it's up in the air. You know, it is, it's a major international sports event, uh, and those generate problems. Uh, I mean, that's just the nature of kind of an event of that size and that scale. So we'll see. Uh, in, interesting future ahead for sure. That's an interesting take on the grassroots thing, because if you think about it, the Paralympics are being formed at about the same time when professional leagues are really starting to assert their dominance. So it's almost like the Paralympics had to start from yeah. the top down rather than the bottom up on, in this respect. Yeah, and I think it's definitely in certain sports have had that more than others, right? Uh, you've, mm, you've really right. had to kind of build up. Some of them have kind of built bottom up. Uh, you know, wheelchair basketball is probably the most famous example that there was lots of mm. wheelchair basketball that's happened and then it kind of consolidated right. around this international kind of events. Right. But a lot of other sports, they aside from the, the Paralympics, they just don't get much attention uh, at the local yeah. level. Uh, and so it's, yeah. you know, it's really hard to kind of promote it. Well, that's the other thing that happened post-World War II, right? Where all of a sudden, your local baseball team wasn't the headline of the sport page. It was the nearest professional baseball. Team. Right. You know, exactly. Even if that was in Kansas City and you were in, you know, Colorado. Yep. You still heard about the Kansas City A's, for God's sake. Right. All right. Dennis Frost, thanks very much for joining us again. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll have you again sometime. I don't know if we talked about everything we can possibly talk about. Well, anytime, anytime you want to have me, I'm, I'm happy to be back. Thanks a bunch, Dennis. Thanks. Take care. This has been Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. To find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com. Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Truly the Goats thanks our guest for this episode. It's Dr. Dennis Frost of Kalamazoo College. Dennis's latest book, More Than Medals, is available from Cornell University Press at cornellpress.cornell.edu. And of course, through the usual online outlets for books as well. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street. 
greatest remix of all time and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying always always perspective 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 Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website. But we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sports. HistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.